this doctor said in a meeting, I don't know why I have to say thank you to people for doing their job. And that was my line. Like I drew that, like shoveled a line in the sand with that. I was like, are you kidding me? We're having a meeting about how you don't think you should have to say thank you to someone for doing their job when literally it is words coming out of your mouth. Thanks for being here today. Oh my God, that was such hard work. I can't believe it. It's not. It just like, how can you come to work and not want to say thank you for this team for busting their butt every second of the day? That's it. That's all we're asking for. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by Megan Brashear. Megan initially went to college as a history major with the objective of teaching high school students, but quickly realizing that for her, such a career was potentially an act of gross masochism, she quickly pivoted, found biology, and shortly after, veterinary technology. Fast forward several years and she gained a BS in animal science from Brigham Young University, her CVT at Oregon in 2000, and became a VTS in emergency critical care in 2004. During her career, she's amassed more than 20 years of ER, ICU nurse, along the way working as a senior leader in both private and corporate practices. After a period of never saying no and just burnout, Megan took a sideways adventure into online training, which was part of our seemingly inevitable 360 back into education, but this time with the right group of students, her beloved veterinary technicians. And so it is that Megan currently works as a member of faculty at Purdue University, a place where she has found her home, combining her skill and passion as a mentor, trainer and leader, helping to develop the vet technician talent of tomorrow. And if you are looking for any evidence that she's in her element as an educator, the fact she's won the coveted VMX Speaker of the Year award not just once but twice, so far, is probably as good a sign as any. Now, before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Vetex Thrive Community. If you're struggling with managing time, feeling like an imposter or burnout, then you need to make a change. The good news is you're not broken or a bad fit for the profession. You're simply missing some super important skills no one teaches at university. Skills you will learn as part of the Vedex community. Thrive is a race accredited professional skills training course where members receive teaching, toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. Join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better by visiting vetexinternational.com and learning more about the class today. Now back to the show. I love this conversation with Megan. From the outside, she might seem understated and quiet, but make no mistake, this double VMX Speaker of the Year has seen and done plenty. She's never shied from opportunity, rebounded from her fair share of knockdown blows, and now, in her latest role, sounds a lot like she's finally found her happy place. There are a lot of important subjects covered in this show, and I know that wherever you are in your journey in veterinary medicine, you're going to find Megan's story helpful. So sit back and enjoy this, my conversation, with the much funnier than she might think she is, occasional sofa hoarding, but genuinely wonderful, Megan Brashear. So welcome to today's show. Yo, Megan, you know what I've not done for a wee while? I've not actually set the scene. And I used to do this a lot before I started the COVID recordings, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Let me set the scene. So it's a spring afternoon. It's late March. The sun is a glorious sunshine. Look out my window and... I'm not looking from a conference center, so that's quite nice, but I can Mm -hmm. see the English Channel is like a mill pond today. It's beautiful, but there's just a haze off in the distance. There's a wind farm about eight 
10 miles offshore here, but I can't see it, which is nice because I like windmills, but you know, it's nice not to see them. So it's kind of almost like a big infinity pool stretching away before me, which sets the tone very nicely. I've been out for a walk this morning. I've done a bit of meditating on the beach, which all of which sets the tone nicely for a, a deep and meaningful with somebody who's been on my list of people to have a chat with for a while. So this is a very big pleasure and honor for me to get to spend a little bit of time with Megan Brashear. So listen, I should say two times Speaker of the Year winning, Uber tech, like legend. Megan, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am doing fantastic. As I look out my window, I can see corn. Well, it's dead corn. They haven't planted anything yet, but I I love it. I'm doing fantastic. So I appreciate you wanting to talk. No, it's great. Thank you for being on. So let's talk just for a second because your Instagram feed, for a while, I'm going to be completely honest here. For a while, I'm like, who's mostly Elliot? And why, what, <laughs> why, is, why am I? I couldn't remember why I started following this mostly. I don't know anybody called Elliot. And I'm following somebody that's doing this renovation project. I'm like, I don't. And then I was like, oh, it's me. Oh, it's me. <laughs> so first of all, tell us, and I think I know the answer to this question, but others mm-hmm. won't. So tell us why mostly Elliot. And then you clearly have been through quite a big move in the last couple of years. And uh, what looks like, well, quite a big renovation project or building projects, maybe a better word for that. So, so let's start with, with Elliot and uh, we can go from there. <laughs> So Elliot is my dog. She is my five-year-old now German short-haired pointer. I love German short-haired pointers. They are the... So I get a lot of looks, especially in veterinary medicine of what, what, why? Pointers are insane. And that is precisely what I love about them. Can we share silly pointer stories? Yes. (laughs) I've got two. How many have you got? Oh, well, I've owned them, lived with them for 20 years now. Oh my so God, you're going to have a bajillion. <laughs> okay, your two best pointer stories. So the first one is my first dog. Uh, his name was Chief. And I was trying to overseed my backyard. So I had like a, probably a 10 or 15 pound bag of grass seed sitting in my garage and kind of muddy. This was when I lived in Oregon. So it was always muddy. And I wouldn't let Chief in the house, but he had access to the garage in a bed and it's not like he was tortured, but he got really mad at me. And so he grabbed this bag of grass seed and he dragged it around the yard, but by dragging it across the cement patio, he busted holes in it. And so he overseeded the yard for me because he's angry. (laughs) He's so... So yeah, that's fine. Get mad all you want and do the work for me. <laughs> you actually, you put a, a work dog to work. Correct. Without beating or shooting or anything. Correct. He also used to retrieve apples. I had a big apple tree. It was way too big to do anything with. And so these apples would fall into the yard and rot. And so I would sit there with just a big garbage bag and tell him, go get the ball and he would pick up an apple, bring it back, drop it in the bag, and I could just watch him clean up the yard all day. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me about him getting drunk on cider, eating all the <laughs> all the rotten apples in the yard. It's a possibility. He was too good, though. He was so perfect. So, all right, your turn. Story one. Okay, so I had it, and I didn't have him for long, for reasons that are about to become very clear, but I worked with a wonderful receptionist called Spaney, 
she was like my my mom away from home to an extent when I was a new graduate. And it was me and her in this, you know, single location and we're, you know, new graduate vet and experienced receptionist. And so I think she just sort of slapped me around the head and kept me on the straight and narrow and gave me cups of tea and toasted sandwiches and, you know, kept me going. So she was a legend. Anyway, one day a short hair pointer uh, came in to be euthanized because it had attacked the cat. Mm. And she, so she, uh, Spinny was not the sort of receptionist she said that to and, and got away with it lightly. So she made the client give the dog to her and said she wouldn't do it. She's not having any of that and take the dog on herself. So so then it was like, and then it became a rehoming job. And then she said, well, do you want to take, I'm like, oh God, I can barely keep a plant alive. So anyway, I felt quite sad for this dog. And so I, I took the dog on and I, I won't change his name. I'll, I'll not use his name just, you know, to keep everyone out of trouble. But I used to take him for walks around and there was a little field. And bear in mind, as I'm, I'm the vet. I'm, I live above the surgery. I'm taking a dog for walks in the field at the back. And by taking for walks, I would take him, let him off the lead, and he would do laps of the field. Mm-hmm. Just run, run and run yep. and run. And he wouldn't stop. So I would take him out. And, the, and so the first couple of times I did this, it was funny. But by the third time, I was going to be late for work again because I couldn't get him back. So I decided I'm gonna have to, the only way I could stop him was by rugby tackling him. And he was he was a lot quicker than me. And I'm, I'm not very good at tackling because I'm a scrum half in rugby and we're quite little. So I would miss him a couple of times and I would, I would take a whole two minutes from the lap round again. This became the most hilarious game to him. And in the end, we would end up in this crumpled, rolling heap of dust in the field, me and ready to go to work. And then I'd walk and, just, and, and there was a row of houses right behind the surgery. They must just have thought their vet was <laughs> the biggest idiot on the planet. They would get their tea and just watch the show, I'm oh, sure. Popcorn for breakfast. So like the vet's <laughs> taking his dog for a walk again. And then I left him in the practice car because he used to get a, a vehicle with a practice when you were mm-hmm. a vet, when I graduated. And it was winter, so it was okay leaving him in the car. It wasn't too hot, it wasn't too cold. So I left him in there and the cleaning lady came in and she had the funniest accent because it was in North Northumberland in northeast of England. And she went, why Davey, is your dog in the car? And I said, yeah, it is. And she said, did you give him breakfast? And I said, yes, I did. He says, well, he looks kind of hungry. He's eating your car. And I went out and I swear, like, so my dog is sat there, like nothing's happened. And I'm, I'm looking in the window going, oh, what am I going to find here? And he had, the steering wheel was half chewed. The covering on the, the dash had been shredded up. He'd bitten through the driver's side seat belt clean. And he just looked like butter wasn't melting in his mouth. He just had a bit of the linoleum sticking out from under his lip. Yeah, like, I don't nothing understand. Just, What's the problem? <laughs> it looked like it was going to get away, Dad. I got it. I was like, <laughs> that was the point where the practice said, you either need to pay for the repairs or he needs a, a home where people can spend time with him, Dave. Yes. So we got him a very good home in Yorkshire Dales, where, to my knowledge, he ran free and happy for the rest of his times. <laughs> that is their job, is running. I've had four pointers in my life, and I don't hunt. I So that's not what they need. They just need space to run, or they need someone that will walk them until their legs fall off. <laughs> that's it. Which is way, yeah. way after yours will fall off. Oh, Absolutely. I would take mine for 
two hour walks and they would come home and be so excited for me to take the leash off so they could go run laps in the yard. <laughs> like they know I, ugh, I'm going for a walk just so this girl can get out of the house. And then finally we'll get home and we can do our Proper own thing. exercise. Correct. How come you fell in love with pointers? My last two years of tech school, we would go to the humane society and pick like 15 dogs and 20 cats and we would use them during the year. So spay and neuter and dentistry and all that good stuff. And then we would adopt them out. So my last two years, we had a pointer each year and they were completely insane. I can still picture walking into the room where the kennels were and you could just see this pointer like jumping to the ceiling, but you put a leash on them and take them out and they were perfection. Like as long as you were touching them and paying attention to them, you could do whatever you wanted. And I just appreciate them about that. They're very simple. (laughs) They don't... Binary. They just want to be outside or hanging out with their people. You know, they have... Mine have always had pretty good indoor manners. Like, oh, we're watching movies today? Okay. But then you get them outside and they are nuts. But they're just pure joy. There's nothing I love more than seeing a pointer go. And most of the time they come back. (laughs) But... I would take them to the beach where it's just endless space and they would run until they were just this tiny little dot. And then I'd see them circle around and always come back and check in. But that pure joy and there's nothing else in their head. And that's what I appreciate. (laughs) So as soon as I graduated, I said, I'm going to get a pointer and it's going to be a stray that comes into the hospital. It's going to be a young male this is what I'm going to name him. And everyone said, Megan, pointers are not stray dogs. You're crazy. And nine months after I started working, one comes in, three-legged lame. I said, I don't have enough money to fix a fracture. And it was a hip lux. And so we popped it in. No problems. No, here's a 50-pound dog. No toggle pin needed. Like Emersling kept it in joint. And he was great. Young male, named him Chief. That was it. So... And then they just arrive when I need them. The universe says, here is a dog. What are some of the circumstances where they've arrived when the universe has gone up? My second one was a parvo puppy that the Humane Society brought in to the hospital where I worked. And they said, we can't have parvo at the Humane Society. And this was a long time ago. And so they're, you know, they brought her in for euthanasia and I'm the crazy pointer lady at work. And so they called me and they knew what they were doing because they (laughs) left her in our isolation exam room, this like 12 week old puppy just sitting in the middle of this big exam room on the floor all by herself. And she looks so pitiful. And so I said, fine, I will take her. And she was an awful puppy. That's the year that I was doing my VTS application and she ate my application because this was, we had to do everything on paper then. There was no computerized anything. So I turned in this application with like two holes in it because she ate it. My third one was just a foster situation, but he was a challenge. I got a little bit, I said, oh, I'll take this dog. I'll make him a great dog and then I'll find a home for him. And it took me a year and a half. Mm -hmm. But then with Elliot, Phoebe passed away very suddenly, just coughed a couple times, 
took x-rays, just mets everywhere. So no clue that anything was wrong with her. And then she bled into her abdomen literally 24 hours later. So Mm. this traumatic loss, like, yeah, yeah. I had a really busy travel schedule. And so I went six months with no dog. And I said, you know, once things slow down for the winter, I'll look into it. And a coworker, her parents live in San Francisco and their landscaper <laughs> had a pointer and they sent her to a kennel to like train her to be this wonderful hunting dog. And she came back from the kennel pregnant. And so they were like, we don't want these puppies. We didn't know this was going to happen. And so this dog had all these puppies. And so this coworker gets in touch with me and I was like, Ugh, I can't think of anything worse than a puppy. I don't want it. Don't want it. Don't want it. But my last trip of the year was to San Francisco to lecture. And that was the weekend these puppies turned eight weeks old. And so universe telling me, get this dog. So I just said, sure, I'll take this one. Like I didn't know male or female, anything like that. I just said, I'll take number five, whatever. And I put her in a cat carrier, (laughs) put her on the plane. Was there like a defining characteristic of number five that made you say that one? She had an all brown head. Okay. So they're not, they're smart in their own way, but they have to be That's what my mom says about me. I'm pretty sure it's not a compliment. It's not necessarily. (laughs) I have very strong feelings that if you're not going to be smart, you have to be pretty. (laughs) Oopsies. (laughs) Double fail. (laughs) And so this is also going to get me in trouble because I know there's lots of people that like the stripe that goes up the nose on a lot of these dogs. But I am wary of a stripe because sometimes it makes their eyes look too far apart. And so I said, (laughs) I really like the all brown head. And she had a completely all brown head. And so that's why I chose her. And she's just next in line of the not perfect, but wonderful pointers. And I I really, truly believe if I need a dog, the universe will put one in my lap. So Mm -hmm. there are lots of opportunities where people say, oh, this one needs a home. And I, you know, I am very much like if it ends up here, it was meant to be. If not, then it wasn't. And I'm fine with that. So when it comes time for me to get another dog, it will make its way into my house without a lot of work. <laughs> and that's that's how it goes. I love it. No, well, thank you for sharing that. You've mentioned when you need a dog twice, and I'm I'm tempted to dive in to ask you about those questions mm-hmm. about those moments. I wonder if perhaps they will reveal themselves as we go through our conversation. You know, we've known each other for a little while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I came to know you through uh, through the speaking work you were mm-hmm. doing, as many of us have gotten to know each other through through that, our sort of our road family, as it were. Exactly. But teaching is something that you know. Well, I think while some of us have sort of do it more willingly than others, you know, looking back through your your interests, I guess, and your career history, you know, so history was your major, and you wanted to teach students at high school. Is that right? Yes. All right. So I thought I wanted to do that. You th- right. Okay. So <laughs> talking about you know 
<laughs> you sort of scratching your itch for teaching the unteachable and crazy with pointers. Now, uh, but- yeah, high school kids are scary. I think all kids are scary. And <laughs> so, yeah, that uh, very quickly made itself evident to me that I don't necessarily enjoy children that much. <laughs> but teaching, that's what's jumping out at me. When I look at your career and what I know of you, you know, you've won uh, accolades as an educator. You're building teaching programs. That to me looks like, when I when I look externally at your sort of area or one of your areas of, of genius that's, that's quite obvious, it's teaching others. Is that true? Is that is that something you recognize in yourself? And second question is, where is that coming from? First question, yes. I think because I enjoy it so much, that's that's kind of where it comes from. I think if you really like to do something, you're probably going to get good at it. I don't know that anybody is, you know, born perfect at what they really want to do, but I just take it from my own experiences. I take it from how lost I felt when I graduated and thought I knew things and then ended up working in specialty. I wandered, you know, into an emergency practice because it sounded exciting and was completely overwhelmed and going home and crying and nobody had any time to talk to me about anything. And so my personality is I have this massive, overwhelming fear of looking stupid. And that drives so much of who I am and what I do. I am the person who, you know, gets somewhere 20 minutes early so that I'm not late and I know where I am and I have time to collect myself. And that translated into my job. And I never want to be the person that's just caught completely unaware of, I had no idea I was supposed to be doing that. I had no idea how to do that. I've never heard of that. So I took that and it made the assumption that a lot of people are probably similar. And so here is what you need to know to not look stupid. And I think I try to teach that way too, as in this is tangible. It's something you can use as opposed to this super deep nonsense physiology that's not helpful I try to say, here's some of that. If you're interested in that, you can go find more about it. Here's the words you can look up. (laughs) But the rest of it is just practical. Don't look like an idiot at work. And because that's, that's my biggest fear. And that's, that's what drives pretty much all of what I do. (laughs) Where does the desire to teach and educate come from? Is there a background there? I'm just thinking, you know, my parents are both educators. Mm -hmm. What's your background? And, And I suppose maybe a question that bounces a little further back on the timeline is how did you, cause you started out looking at history as a teaching thing, mm-hmm. but wound up in veterinary medicine. How did that transition happen? So you can take a chunk out of the, any of those questions. as you Yeah. I don't come from, my dad was in the air force. So I grew up as a military kid and uh, my mom was an occupational therapist. So she worked you know, on, she worked in the school systems, but, you know, worked with kids that, you know, needed that, that occupational therapy. So not an educational background. I think I grew up with pets, but not a ton of them. I had cats. I never had a dog as a kid. And I felt like that was this (laughs) 
that was missing from my life. That was the great injustice. The universe. You wanted a, you wanted a dog as a kid. I did want a dog as a kid, but as a family that moved every three or four years, my parents were like, "No, we we know." They had a good justification for not in their head. Correct, and I can understand that now. I guess as an adult, but that was really hard for me as a kid. There's so much in the I guess there. <laughs> I guess. I made it work. So, (laughs) but I always enjoyed animals, you know, you'd go to the zoo as a kid and and would watch the nature shows on TV. But I think as every six-year-old girl wants to be a veterinarian, I went through that phase. But as I got older going to school, I don't have a, like, I'm not an analytical person at all. I don't have the brain for complex math. Science was always kind of hit or miss for me. Um, I really struggled through physics because I cannot, like, I don't see things very well. It has to be like very, you know, written down this and then this and then this. And I really struggled with build a motor, like calculate these vectors. I was like, I don't, what is that? And chemistry is a nightmare for me. It is too small. If I can't see it, it doesn't exist. And so I just kind so of the ab- to abstractions weren't yeah, th- no. th- not something your brain wanted to play <laughs> with at all. This is why nursing care, I love it so much because I can see it. Here is what is wrong with the animal. Here is what I can do to have an impact. And I can see the results in the patient. Yep. So I talked myself out of any sort of career in science, medicine, any of it, because I thought I can't do this. I will never get through any sort of schooling that has to do with this. And so I really enjoyed history. I liked the, you know, the stories part of it. Um, Looking back, I think that's what it was. I think it's just the the impact of issues on people and and how they adjust and and move forward. And so, you know, I went to college and said, I'm going to major in history. And what do you do with a history major is, well, you should probably teach because, I don't, I'm not going to get, you know, some PhD in it and write books. That's not fun. So, (laughs) but I, I hated it. You know, like the survey courses, the first couple of years are fine. And then you get into, you know, what it was time to do student teaching. Yeah. And that was terrifying. And I was like, I don't know. I am so like cripplingly introverted. I've had to work really hard to get outside of that. But when I was, you know, 20 years old as a college student, no, there, I could not step outside of my comfort zone and put myself out there to this, a, just a classroom full of people that I don't know. And so I wandered into the animal science section and like talked to the administrative assistant behind the desk and said, what can I do with animals? <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't know what a veterinary technician was. I knew that my animals would go to the veterinarian. You know, my cat was blocked. He had a urinary obstruction when I was a kid. And I remember that. And he spent a couple days in the hospital. And, but I never was just, I never had an interest. I was never involved with it. I was like, great, he's feeling better. Super. (laughs) And so they said, well, we have this veterinary technology program, you know, take a couple of these prerequisite courses and so I took an advanced biology class and loved it. Just like... What did you love about it that was not present in these other courses? Because I could memorize things and pass the test. 
Was there something that made it more memorable to you? I think it was more structured than I thought that it would be. So when you get into the biology portion of things and you're looking at cell division and you're looking at the different parts of the cell, like I could put those into like a linear this, then this, then this, and I could memorize that as opposed to, you know, thinking about, you know, whatever, what if the civil war had started 10 years earlier? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. What if it did? So I went back to something that was much more comfortable to me and it, it made more sense to me. And so I said, well, yeah, maybe I can do this. And then once I started taking the, you know, core veterinary technician classes, that was it. Like the hands-on, yeah, just being able to be with those animals and to to start to understand what this job really is. Great. Done. Sold. This is it. So there's a number of ways we could bounce off of there. I actually want to pause for a second on, you know, the introverted nature. I didn't expect that. (laughs) I am a great faker. (laughs) Okay. So let's speak a bit more about that. Let's just pause on that for a little second, because I think there's perhaps this narrative that, and in life, you know, it's loud, noisy people like me who end up getting attention, which is unwarranted or unhelpful or what it, you know, takes away attention from people who are actually deeply thinking or, you know, every bit as valuable and arguably more so contribution to make. I like it that way. So Mm. you can have all the attention you want because I don't like it. So my entire aesthetic (laughs) is to blend in. And honestly, and truly, that is what caused me to change jobs from when I was doing the online education Mm -hmm. through Dove Lewis. I loved that. And I loved it when it was on a, a small scale. And it it continued to grow and become very popular. And I liked the part of it where people were learning. And I liked when people would come up and say, I watched your videos or we use your videos in the classroom and it's so helpful. And I I really liked that part, but it started getting pushed out as, you know, come to the booth and meet Megan. And because it started, it wasn't about the teaching anymore. It was about come meet this personality. And I know mm-hmm. I don't want, I don't want to be the personality. I just, I want you to focus on the learning part. And it, it became very stressful and I don't want the attention. And I know that it, I don't want it to be like, I don't know. It just, it sounds weird to say that because you'll have a lot of people say, well, how could you not want that. That sounds so wonderful that everybody knows who you are. Mm-hmm. I don't, Yeah, I don't want it to, it's not about me, the person it's about what we're doing. It's about the message. the message. And so it just is a, that's, I don't like attention. I just want to be in the background. <laughs> right. And so that being true, I'm curious, cause there's a lot of people who are uh, introverted in mm-hmm. veterinary medicine. Yes. Which always strikes me as just one of the great big, I don't know if it's an irony, it probably is an irony, given how much time is spent with other human beings. Mm-hmm. And now you've taken it to the next level by doing the thing that perhaps terrifies more human beings than anything else, you know, public speaking, mm-hmm. and doing it 
not just well, but well enough to win Speaker of the Year. Not just once, but twice at the last count. I'm, I'm not missing any there, am I? No. So that's kind of a big deal. How did you achieve that as an introvert? How did you overcome your, and indeed was there, fear of, fear of speaking, fear of presenting? If my understanding of things is correct, that you know, you're, you're sort of draining yourself when, mm-hmm. when you're with other people, whereas somebody like me energizes by being yeah. around other human beings. What is self-care? How do you make sure that you are recharged and stay, you know, you have the capability to keep doing what you do? Here's the first thing is that for me, I don't think fear of public speaking is linked to introversion or extroversion. I think there are plenty of extroverts who are afraid to stand up in front of a group full of people and talk. The introvert part of it, honestly, for me, standing up and lecturing is not draining because I get to talk about what I love doing and I get to take that fear that I had for the first five years of my career and I see it as as helping people, hopefully. And so that's not the issue for me. The issue for me is come to the speaker reception where you know maybe one person and spend two hours making small talk with strangers. That no, I don't want I don't want to do that. That is the draining part for me. Small talk is no. Introverts love to talk, but I want it to be like the conversation we're having. This is on a much deeper level. I want to connect with you and and figure out who you are and talk to you about who I am. That is much better than how long have you been doing this? What other lectures are you doing this year? Who do you know? Where have you been? I don't care about that because it doesn't let me know who you are. Right. So I can go to, you know, travel and I get to see different places. I'd like to be by myself. And so, you know, walking around a city where I've never been or, you know, going to, you know, some learning about the history of a city that I've never visited before, that part is fun for me. But I just, I learned, and I didn't learn this till I was probably 40 years old, is to listen to myself. And when my brain is saying, girl, (laughs) you are overwhelmed right now, you need a break, that I take an introvert day. And I plan it. I look at my schedule and say, you need a day where you don't talk to anybody. Okay. What what are the signs for you? And then what do you do in your introvert day? The signs for me are I am angry at things that I should not be angry at. When my dog comes into the house and her feet are muddy and I'm mad at her. No, that's my fault for not cleaning her feet. But I can tell when I'm very quick, like <laughs> if I'm sitting in my office and I'm yelling at my emails you're a little too far over the edge. So I've had to learn to kind of listen to that and say, okay, you've had two days of sustained irritation at everything. And for my introvert days, (laughs) I've learned that I need to tell my extrovert friends, leave me alone (laughs) because they get worried and they think I'm dead. (laughs) We're so needy. Yes, I don't. I can't have six hours. My closest friend is an extrovert and we joke about this all the time that I'm, you know, constantly telling her to relax and she's constantly telling me to leave my house. So it's a good balance. I do appreciate extroverts because I need them to get me out of 
you know, because I am fine. If I have a weekend and I have nothing planned, I am 100% happy to not leave my house. But that on a prolonged scale is also not healthy. So I need them to plan things (laughs) and make me show up. But on introvert days, I just put my phone on silence. I don't have to turn it off, but I just don't make myself get up. If I want to sleep in, I will sleep in. I watch just complete waste of time TV. So I will go through an entire reality show, like eight episodes, and just have that on in the background. I often don't leave the house. Maybe I'll, you know, take Elliot out to a park or something and take her for a walk. I'll sit on my back porch and throw the ball for her. It's just whatever I feel like doing. And honestly, sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it's don't take a shower, don't just like nap and read and, you know, take stupid BuzzFeed quizzes all day. It's whatever feels okay, but I have to limit it to a day. I can't let myself take an introvert weekend (laughs) because then it just starts feeling like, this is probably unhealthy to not communicate with the world. And I think it's very easy to just slip into completely antisocial and trick myself into saying this is just what you need as an introvert. So it is a balance and it has taken me almost my entire life to get that figured out and to say, allow yourself this time, but then also make yourself get up and be productive. Because if I do that for a whole weekend, all of a sudden it's Sunday night And I'm looking around and I'm like, I still have to clean the kitchen. And oh, look at all this laundry I have to do. Like, that's not helpful either. So Mm. finding that balance is tough. Okay, so... I can see on your face, you're like, what? What No. (laughs) No, no, it's like I... I, Well, I was just reflecting on... I I mean, because lockdown, Mm -hmm. particularly here in the UK, we've been locked down for the last three months and... You know, I've, I've basically been climbing the walls, but I had what I mean, what you might describe as an introvert day on Saturday where I just sat and I watched sport mm-hmm. on TV because there was a lot of rugby happening. And I got to the end of it and I was, I could feel myself vibrating yeah. all over with, an, with a, and I think it's a, a social anxiety at not being around people. Like I felt, mm-hmm. I felt like I was climbing the walls, which was just incredible. But, you know, so it's, it's just great to hear that other perspective on, on what it's like as well. And that feeling that you have is how I feel when I've had too much small talk. It's literally that like, I like have to, you know, like I'm, my fists are clenching. Like I have that uncontrollable urge to just yell and run away because it, that like my brain is like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. It doesn't. And I like, I start to like twitch and I'm looking around and I'm like, how can I get out of this? Because I literally cannot put any more energy into caring about what you're talking about because it's not, there's no, there's no connection. Right. I will talk forever and ever and ever if it's about something that I care about. But once I don't care, I'm out. (laughs) There's so many ways. So I'm, I'm actually now I'm interested in what are the things that you care to talk about the most and you care about the most then? Are there subjects that come up? Because there's lots of questions I have. Like I want to go back and talk about early career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And particularly, I think with blunt dissection, there's always a little bit of a leadership and success flavor. And the, the notion that success is this ready-baked thing that comes out the oven is 
nonsense that we're yeah. basically trying to dismantle as best possible. But it means different things to different people. So there's a number of ways we could go from here. How about we start with what are the things that you care to talk about the most? I'm very interested in, I have a, a very strong moral compass, I think. And, and that morality is not the same for everybody, but I have a right and a wrong for me. And I enjoy exploring that both about myself and about other people. And so that inevitably comes back to politics, unfortunately. But talking about the decisions that people make, why they make those decisions, how they make those decisions. And I think that that also bleeds over into veterinary medicine. And because we don't make the decisions for our patients, somebody else makes those decisions and we have to carry them out. And so exploring that and moving forward from this is not what I would have done, so it's wrong, but trying to understand why they would have done that. I grew up in a very religious household. My family is still very religious and I am not anymore. And that was a big journey of years and years and years of trying to make that right and figure out, you know, how do I still connect with my family when this huge thing doesn't exist anymore? And so that is what is interesting to me. And I think that I can put that into veterinary medicine. I can put that into politics. I can put that into decisions that people make in business I just like kind of exploring what's right and wrong to different people, I guess. Okay, so let's, um, because actually, you know, this sort of ties into your your journey, your story about coming into veterinary medicine and might actually provide quite a nice backdrop for your career story. But that's an interesting vessel through which to explore quite a lot of different things. So first of all, I'm actually curious how you squared that that away. I I mean, I would say I, I have a, I think as many of us, this religion seemed to be a much more important thing to people a number of years ago, for right or wrong, no no judgment on that here. But certainly I was, you know, my family were you know, Catholic on one side, mm-hmm. Protestant on the other, that's a whole other conversation how they came together. And a very religious granny and then a decreasingly religious everyone to me. So I feel like I have a spiritual thing, you know, a spiritual belief but I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure about the religion bit. So I give that a bit of a, you know, the old whale eye thinking, mm. Mm, Yeah. So let's dwell on that for a second, but I'm more interested in how you reconciled the the relationship, how you built that bridge with family. And then perhaps most interestingly at all, what perspective that brought you and being able to look at other areas, not, you know, there's so many, contradictions in our life things that we have mm-hmm. to be or do and we label and so I'm, I'm curious about how people hold seemingly opposed things within them to be able to move forward in, in the way of life that doesn't create anxiety that creates a sense of certainty around who you are who we are how things all fit together that's a kind of a giant philosophical question we just stumbled into there but you know go at that however you feel it's not perfect and I think my relationship with my family is, it's not super close, but it's not, it's also not antagonistic. It just kind of exists. Um, my family lives on the West Coast in Washington State, and I moved out to Indiana. And, you know, so I see them every couple years, probably. But I just, I have to say 
that this is what makes them happy, right? They get something out of this, they get community out of this, they get hope out of this, they get, you know, whatever it is. And that is what they need to make them happy. And so why would I then have a problem with that for them? And that's all I ask to for them to understand about me, because it, it doesn't bring the same things for me. It for me, it brought a lot more anxiety and it brought a lot more expectation. And I felt like I can't live up to this. So if it doesn't bring me that hope and that joy and whatever, then why would I do that? <laughs> why would I go to church? Why would I follow through on something that just brought me a lot of pain? And But it's okay for you. And I'm not going to try to put my experience on you. So please don't put your experience on me and then we can be okay. You can sort of have a two cats that are tolerating each other respectfully. Yeah. I can understand that I I don't want to change their mind because it is okay for them. And I think we finally reached that point where they're not going to try to change my mind either. But we're very different on the political scale. We're different on the religion scale. So we cannot talk about those things when we're all together. So speaking of small talk... <laughs> It's a lot of what my family does <laughs> because we just can't dive too deep into things because we're just going to be at an impasse. I'm not interested in debating. I'm not interested in, you know, trying to get them to see exactly what my side is because what would be the point of that? So, yeah, you know, I just, it's okay. I think growing up, as a military kid who moved a bunch, you make friends and then you leave friends knowing that you're going to make more friends. So that's okay. I think I realize that I can cut people out of my life. That sounds so dramatic and it's not that dramatic because I haven't cut my family out. But I, I understand that if you don't have those super tight bonds, you're going to be okay because you just kind of make the family that you want. You have the people around you that you want around you and it's okay. So I still love them. I still want to see them. I'm still interested in what they're doing, but it's not this massive thing. There's a value disconnect somewhere down the line. Yeah. And that that's okay because, and not everybody has to be the same and it's fine. <laughs> that is one of the things that's that seemed to have been laid bare more in the last few years than any other. You know, there's been a number of times I've come really close to unfriending people who have been considered to be quite good friends because I think I've wrestled with the, I'm not sure how to be friends with somebody when they hold, you know, such apparent values about things. And that might be, and it's, you know, that that actually is friends and family, you know, because over here we had Brexit. Yep. We've got the Scottish independence Mm -hmm. thing rearing its head again. You've had Trump or, you know, more, Republican, Democrat. Yeah. Yeah, right. Now there's actually science versus anti-science, which mm-hmm. almost feels like a form of rebellion of sorts rather than anything sensible. Yeah. You've got all manner of reasons for people to be writer or disconnect yeah. or to have, have belief. And it is it's very hard to have any sort of meaningful conversations around anything like that because things have become so utterly polarized. In your exploration of the morals and, and values, you said you found a way to navigate through there. What I mean, beyond just not speaking to them for two years. 
But it's not we don't speak. I just haven't seen that. <laughs> I'm teasing. How has this, have you been able to bring this into your working, your work world and friends world? Because you've, you've been through some, some trauma within the mm-hmm. workspace as well and stuff to work through. So maybe we'll start, we'll start at the back end of that and move forwards. Most of it is, for me, it's to just, just stop trying to put my opinions on other people. I mean, it is, it bleeds into the medical side. Obviously, I have an opinion about what we could or should be doing with a patient. And sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong, but I have learned to step back from that and to ask more questions as opposed to straight out judging somebody about something. But that being said, I have a very defined line in the sand of what I will tolerate and what I won't tolerate. And some of those things, you know, here's my deal breakers and I'm just, I'm not going to put up with it. So I have made some very dramatic decisions (laughs) based on some of those things. I had a doctor in a meeting once we were talking about, you know, helping the staff feel appreciated. You know, we can get into all of the issues with veterinary technicians and pay and respect and all of that. And I have, you know, in talking with technicians my entire career, just say thank you. It's a very simple thing. And this doctor said in a meeting, I don't know why I have to say thank you to people for doing their job. And that was my line. Like I drew that, like shoveled a line in the sand with that. I was like, are you kidding me? We're having a meeting about how you don't think you should have to say thank you to someone for doing their job when literally it is words coming out of your mouth. Thanks for being here today. Oh my God, that was such hard work. I can't believe it. It's not. It just like, how can you come to work and not want to say thank you for this team for busting their butt every second of the day that's it. That's all we're asking for. And so done. I can't work for that person anymore. You know, so I try (laughs) and I will give people the benefit of the doubt. I am my mantra for life is assume good intent all the time. Like you're doing the best you can, but when it comes to something so simple, when it comes to something that just on it, that's just a base humanity level for me is to say, thank you. I can't do it anymore. And it's really hard to drag me back from that. So I try to make decisions with grace as much as I can. I try. I know myself. I know I'm going to have an immediate emotional reaction to anything that's said or done and that I need to internalize that. I need to sit with it for a minute and then I can think through and, you know, have a response to it. But yeah, I do have that line and just don't push me on that line (laughs) and everything will be okay. So I can say to whoever believes whatever, that's okay. But there are just certain things that, and then I don't need it. And I will tell you cutting people out. Great. I'll do it (laughs) because the introvert in me says, I don't need that many friends anyway. It'll be fine. (laughs) (sighs) That's not necessarily okay, but I have been off Facebook for a year and a half now. And it is, I cannot tell you the benefits of just not engaging because what's the point? I want to have you speak to that a bit more. Uh, I feel like we're never going to get to your, like, there's so many other things to talk about. It sounds like you found 
a really good space mm-hmm. for you to be in and to just for you career wise, you know, so perhaps I'm just going to sort of describe the journey along the way to finding here, because, you know, you mentioned sort of the dramatic decisions earlier. So you moved from, from the West coast. Now you're sort of, um, Indiana. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, uh, you know, there's a move. Yeah. What's the story behind the move? What drove you there? Or, you know, and that could be internal or external. Mm-hmm. And how did you find your way to your happy? What did you have to learn about you to find your happy place? I had to recognize that what I was doing was not working at all. So take us back to that. Where did you start to where you got now? Well, I started probably in the early 2000s of not being able to say no. I talk about how veterinary medicine is guilt-driven, that we make a lot of decisions based on guilt because we feel sorry for our coworkers. We feel sorry for the doctors. We feel sorry for pet owners. So we do all of these things to make ourselves feel better. I firmly believe that most veterinary technicians enter this field because we fix broken things and we fix all of these animals. And then I had a friend say to me, Megan, you do that in your relationships. Oh, yep. So I am attracted to broken things and I think that I can fix them. And we continue to push out and try to fix these things because it's, I don't have to worry about myself. If I can go to work every day and I can try to fix the patients, I can try to fix my team, I can try to fix the profession as a whole, then I don't have to focus on myself. And I think that's a huge problem in veterinary medicine is that we want to blame a lot of our problems on there are tons of issues in veterinary medicine, but we're not also self-reflecting. Yeah. So this is took years for me to figure this out. But I started all the extra shifts, taking on more responsibility, doing, 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 working, 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 and not trying to work on myself at all. So get uncomfortable, change jobs, right? So I was with WS for 16 years and then moved on to another specialty hospital and told myself, okay, you're going to have some boundaries and you're going to create this job and you're going to be home on the weekends and you're going to take your dog for walks and it's going to be great. And it took me about eight months to slide right back into where I was. Oh, you need somebody to be in this leadership position? Sure, I've done that before. I'll take over. Oh, you don't have anyone to work the 12-hour overnight shift for the next eight days? Sure, I'll do that. And I slid right back into just completely miserable. And that's when I lost my dog, um, was right around that time. And it was traumatic. And I didn't realize it, but I was kind of on the edge of getting by and not doing well. And this is the two couch story. And I have these, like looking back, I have these signs of major issues, but I had a couch and a chair in my living room. My sister was moving and she gave me her nicer couch and chair. So my brother-in-law dropped them off and my plan was to donate the old ones. But in order to do that, like you have to pick up the phone and make a phone call. You have to organize for somebody to come pick it up. I was like, well, I should vacuum it because, you know, I have pets and so whatever. And that was too much work for me 
to do that. Even I had days off. I have never worked seven days a week for six months in a row. So there was really no excuse for it. But I could just literally could not summon the energy to vacuum, call, have somebody take this away. And for eight months, I had two couches and two chairs crammed into my living room. And it just became this, the symbol of your mental health is not in a good place. People would come over and say, why do you have all this furniture in your living room? And I was like, oh, yeah, I just need to call, you know, it'll be fine. I just but nobody ever came over twice because I was embarrassed at the two couches and two chairs. And it's been months and I can't get rid of them. And it's so clear now. But I think just living in that when I changed jobs, I cleaned out my office, and I stacked the textbooks and papers and stuff in front of my bookshelf at home and was going to go through them. And I never did until I moved. So it for three years, this stuff was just stacked up in front of my bookshelf in the middle of my house, like, just can't, can't do it. And so coming home from work and being miserable and, you know, just seeing all these physical manifestations of how miserable I was, I knew I needed to make a dramatic change. And it couldn't just be go work in a different place. It needed to be just, you have to just leave, get out. A pattern interrupt. Yeah. Before you hit the pattern interrupt, you know, what were you afraid of losing? If you're holding on to everything. I honestly don't know. I think it was just the fear of like admitting that I couldn't do it. I think to go in and actually organize my life (laughs) to do all of that would admit that what I had been doing up to that point was awful. You know, Mm -hmm. like it just, it wasn't working. I also have this, I don't like to ask for help. And I know that about myself, but it's really hard for me to jump over that and to be able to call my friends and say, if you come over and help me vacuum, (laughs) get rid of this couch, I can do it because I need that external push to do it. But I can't call you because then that would be asking for help. And I can't admit that all of this is just a mess and it's not going well. I think that's what it is. I, I honestly don't know. But instead of actually cleaning it up, I would sit in my room and I would look up like, what does a cluttered house mean to mental health? Like, honestly, and truly, I would read those articles so I could identify that I had a problem, but I couldn't take the step to actually do anything about it. Yep. It was not good. And friends knew it. And it took me too long to realize it. But yeah, I was just, just not happy at all. Yep. And so it was your coping strategy was to hold on, to control something you could control? I think so. I think it was just more avoidance. Like, I'll find other things to do rather than actually address the problem, which was the two couches. Like, just think about something else. And And the the two couches being a a symptom (laughs) of the real problem, which was thing that was happening at work and you're hoarding tasks at work <laughs> yes taking on more and more and more and, and well that that goes to one place which is burnout yeah relatively quickly so you're on this road and then you go for your pattern interrupt yeah i knew that something 
big needed to happen. And I would fantasize about whatever that thing was. And I didn't know, but I would fantasize about just not being in that house anymore and not being so miserable in the job that I was in. But I I didn't know what it was going to take. And there was a lot happening with that job. I took on responsibility that I didn't want. I took on a hospital administrator position. I don't care about the whole hospital. I only care about the technicians. (laughs) And I know that now that I should not go above technician management because that is who I really care about. So that was good for me to learn that lesson. But there was a union effort happening in the hospital. And to be a hospital administrator in that situation is a nightmare because I identified with the technicians and what they were fighting for. And then you have, you know, the bosses saying, well, you have to represent the business. And so it was just Everything is your values are just torn and oh, absolutely, absolutely. And so I said, I got to get out of this, and I don't know what to do. But I was at a conference in Chicago, and I was sitting at the bar, (laughs) just like, I don't. What am I going to do? And I get a phone call from a technician who I had met before, but was not really friends with. I honestly don't know how she had my phone number. But she called me and said, do you want to come to Purdue because my boss is leaving? And I said, yeah, I think I do. And it was this, like, this is my out. And this will be a massive change. And yeah, I think I want to do this. How did you feel in that moment? Like, it was just an out of the blue call. Did you give an out out of the blue answer right there at the bar? Yeah, I did. Because she said, do you want to come to Purdue? And I said, yeah, I think I do. And she was completely like, what? (laughs) This was kind of a joke phone call. Like there were a couple of the Purdue supervisors that got together and they're like, well, well, maybe Megan Brashear wants this job. And so she said, well, I have her phone number. I'll call her. And I said, yeah, yeah, I think I want to do this. And then they just went, where do we go from here? I didn't know she was going to say yes. But I had been to Purdue before. I had never worked in academia, but obviously like, love teaching. And it would be a huge challenge personally and professionally and all of those things. And I knew that I needed to do something dramatic. And this is pretty dramatic. (laughs) So let's try it. And I did. And I waited, you know, I wrote a job description and sent it to them and they had theirs. And we kind of put this job together because it was going to be different than what the previous person had been doing. And the job was posted and I applied for it. And I flew out here and interviewed. I don't remember much of it at all because it still seemed like just this crazy idea. Like, why would I move to Indiana? I live in Portland, Oregon. It's so wonderful out here. I was miserable. So why not? Why not move to Indiana? So I did. (laughs) I just packed up what I wanted. I gave away a ton of things. And who got the couches? Uh, <laughs> I gave them to a coworker and I see that she'll Both post of on them? Instagram. No, the first one I did get rid of is I donated it before I moved. <laughs> I was going to say that needed to be a flaming bonfire at the front of your I really, yes, looking back, should have just set it all on fire. <laughs> I called up some dude on the internet and I sold my house. Like I never put it on the market. I sold it to a flipper 
Eric Garcia was so concerned. He's like, Megan, what are you doing? You just like, what if you get scammed out of your entire house? And I was like, I don't care. I honestly and truly, I need out. I don't care what happens. There is nothing of just do whatever you want to it. And that's it. Packed up my car, took my animals and drove out here. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned Eric Garcia there. And I assume this is after the phone call. Yes. <laughs> now, this is. So, <laughs> so, going back to understanding when I need to take a break is this just pure, unadulterated anger at stupid things. I believe at the time that that phone call was made, I was in the process of like, interviewing out here. I don't think I had been out here yet, but I think I knew that I was going to be done. But I had a day off from work and I had taken Elliot to this river bottoms, like swimming, throwing the ball. Like I'd been outside doing one of my favorite things for a couple hours and I was driving back home and the traffic in Portland is just the worst. And they were doing some construction and they had closed the freeway exit that I take to get to my house. And I was going to have to go one more exit, another mile, double back. It was probably going to add 10 minutes to my trip. And I lost my mind, just literally (laughs) yelling in my car, crying. I had a complete breakdown over construction. And so I called Eric because I I really was a little bit scared of what is happening here? Why? Why? So of course he didn't answer. And I make fun of him for being a grandpa because he goes to bed. <laughs> this was probably 8.30 my time. So it would have been 11.30 uh, his time because he lives in Florida. But I just yelled at his voicemail for a couple minutes. And I'm laughing, I'm crying, I'm yelling, I'm talking quietly. Like it was just a complete break with reality. And then I ended it just laughing and like, okay, bye. (laughs) And to his credit, he saved that voicemail. I think he listened to endless rants on my end until I could understand that I was so miserable I needed to leave. And that thankfully he saved that. It's hard for me to go back and listen to it because I still remember how that felt, but I'm glad that I can look back at that and laugh and say that was my low point, but I had recognized it and I was looking for and working on a way out. But I've played that voicemail in a couple different lectures to help people see that it happens and it's okay But when you get to that point, you can't just say, well, whatever, I'm just going to go back to work and keep doing the same things because that does not lead anywhere good. So veterinary medicine, and thank you for sharing that, the story, (laughs) all of the stories. Veterinary medicine seems to lend itself to, you know, the, the amount of pressure that we put on ourselves, the amount of pressure that the systems we have places upon us and the teams. And we seem to be in a bit of a, I think a dangerous moment for the profession right now. Existentially, one of the greatest threats seems to be the fact that we are struggling to retain talent mm-hmm. for any length of time. From your perspective, working, you know, now as you know, you've worked as a leader, you've worked as a technician, uh, you know, literally and figuratively. 
you worked as an, an educator. You've worked in this profession for a long time. So what lessons do we need to learn? And you can come at this from the technician or the team point of view, but you're mm-hmm. thinking more, you know, technicians are your passion. But what do we need to do to make this a sustainable place that people can come, enjoy, and stay for a while and feel good about when they decide the time is right to leave? So so that they don't have to make their own version of, you know, a raging meltdown on the phone to Eric Garcia. That actually we can be comfortable in this because it's got there's plenty of things to be uncomfortable about, but yeah. they don't have to be overwhelming. Yeah. How do we make this sustainable from your point of view? I can only speak to my own experience, but I think part of it as a profession, we need to stop trying to be all things to all people. You know, I think we still go back to James Harriet and and how you know, you could pay for veterinary care with a pie and, you know, you could call him in the middle of the night and he would come out and fix your cow. And it was just this very folksy and, and I do it for the love of the profession. We're beyond that. You can't (laughs) squeeze in all of those extra appointments and you can't just grind your team to death because there's not enough of them. So we need to look at what our abilities are with the people that we have and the time that we have. And to say, you know, we're going to see this many appointments, but we're going to make this the experience that the client is actually looking for and that the team is actually looking for, and then figure out how to make that work financially. And there's no easy answers to it. It's not just as simple as saying, do this, but you have to look back at your team and say, are they able to handle what we're doing? We have to be able to say to stable patients that come in through the emergency room, you know, we can't see you right now (laughs) because we have 50 other things on the board that are truly dying. And the team, there's not enough of us here to do this. We don't need to pack in all of these different appointments and eight procedures for the day because our team literally can't do it. We have to learn how to say no. We need Mm -hmm. to say no as a profession and we need to say no, set those boundaries. And that's what I did when I came here. I said, you know, I'm not working extra shifts. I pick up shifts in the hospital, but if I work a Saturday, I take a Thursday off and I flex my time. I said to myself, girl, you are almost 45 years old. You cannot do overnight shifts anymore. And so I don't pick up overnight shifts. When my shift is over, I go home and I I check in with people and I have certainly stayed late if I need to. But if I don't need to, I will go home early. So I will say, hey, I know you're supposed to be off before me. Do you want the hours? And they say yes. And I say, awesome. High fives. I'm going home now. So I just put boundaries around the time that I know that I need for myself. And I don't feel guilty about it. I just said, why shouldn't I be able to have time? And I also make sure that the team understands that sometimes it's going to be busy. And you should take pride in getting through those busy times and not just feel like nobody sees you or nobody cares about you. And if it's like that all the time, if you're miserable all the time, you're drowning all the time, that's not okay. But every once in a while, somebody is sick and we can't get the shift filled and you guys pull together and that should be something to celebrate and then move on. And I just think, stop judging clients, right? 
stop taking on that responsibility for decisions that other people make about their pets. Move on. It's not my job. I can't. I cannot. I'm sorry that this has to be the end result to this, but I can't. (laughs) I can't be the person that has to fix all of the things. Right. And sometimes that means arriving at a painful decision or or having, you know, there's there's moments of guilt that will Mm -hmm. come from that. How have you worked your way to being okay with that? I mean, what 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 things have been useful for you? Uh, therapy, mindfulness, not giving a shit. <laughs> I tell myself this a lot. I would probably benefit from a lot of therapy, but I have not done any, you know, official therapy. I look at it as can I fix this? Right? So, if a client comes in and their pet needs a $5,000 surgery, and they don't have the money for it, and they make the difficult decision to euthanize, do I have $5,000 that I could pay for this surgery? No, then I cannot be upset at those people. I can still be upset at the situation. And I can be very sad at the loss of this pet's life and what that family must be going through. But I don't take that on as my own. That doesn't mean that I'm not emotional about the decision that has to be made, but that emotion isn't directed at, I'm so angry at you for making this decision. I just say, this is a very sad, shitty situation. I'm going to sit with this dog. I'm going to try to make his last moments good. And then I have to move on because I cannot shoulder the responsibility of the health and safety of every animal in the world. And so... I do what I can for my pets. I do what I can to comfort those people. And then I have to move on from that situation. And it's not not giving a shit because I do care, but I just don't take it home with me. Okay. And and I it took me a long time to get there. Right. So it's recognizing that there is pain, that there is an emotion happening, but not mistaking it for it having to be your pain. It's not Absolutely. you're not you're not picking up a rock and putting it in your own bag. You're just holding the rock and going, oh, this is a shit rock, and then putting it down beside you. I might put it in my pockets for that day, but then I have to empty my pockets at some point. And and it's hard to tell people that when they're in the middle of it to just say, you can't take this. But I'm constantly saying, I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the situation. But I can't yell at the situation. So that means I just, I got to let it go. And I got to say, this is not my battle to fight because it's just not. I wish I had a more profound way to explain it, but you just can't take on other people's stuff. You just can't. It, that is their battle to fight. And I can help them in what I do for my job, which is do what I can for the animals that are in my care, empathize and you know provide support for people that are making tough decisions, but not take that decision on as my own because it's not, and I don't have any control over it. What can I control? I cannot control the decision they make, but I can control my response to that decision. And my response needs to be, I'm sorry, this is happening right now, but I'm not going to take it home with me because then I would have 10 couches. (laughs) I was going to say, it sounds like there's a heck of a few rocks in that couch making it hard to shift as well. Okay, so loving our conversation, but I'm going to shift pace now into our sort of shorter form questions. Okay. And I'm I'm curious, you know, I, I wonder if there's any books in particular that, that you have found to be especially helpful in your career. I will tell you what has been helpful to me 
as a person figuring this stuff out is to figure out my communication style. So figure out my Myers-Briggs. And we're having a lot of fun at work right now with the Enneagram. So that is, you know, I don't take it to heart, but learning about myself and what my natural inclinations are has really helped me figure out how to do some workarounds and figure out how to live with that. What have been your most powerful insights from that? And did you say Enneagram? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've not heard of this one. Enneagram is, I know it's super complicated. <laughs> it's like this nine, there's nine different types and they have all these different lines that connect. And if you're healthy, you go this way. And if you're an unhealthy, you go this way. And so it just kind of talks about what your base kind of personality and how you react to the world around you. And when you're, you know, kind of what your wings are, it gets a little bit crazy, but it's very interesting because it just kind of lets you know where you're coming from. And again, it's not a crystal ball, but it it helps me understand why I make the decisions that I do. And then it helps me not to become that stereotype. It helps me say, okay, well, I'm a five, you know, so this is my five coming out here. And this is how I need to back off a little bit. Same with Myers-Briggs. I am an introvert, but that doesn't mean that I need to fall into all of those tropes. I kind of like it when people are like, you are an introvert. That's crazy. But that just means that I've learned to deal with that. I've learned to listen to myself, but that, you know, I can still be a person who's out there meeting new people and wanting to connect with the world around me because I do. It's not all about sitting alone in my bedroom. (laughs) So those I think have been the most helpful to me. Okay. So I was going to ask what the most controversial thing about you is that people don't know, but really matters. I'm not sure you've not already told us that. God, I... (laughs) And you can swap out the word controversial with fun or silly, whatever makes you comfy. That's a hard question for me because I don't, I don't think that I am very controversial. I am very silly, but I think that comes through in my lecture style because I am not a super serious person. I can be, but I don't want to be. So there really isn't much about me that people don't know. And I am not controversial. (laughs) By any stretch of the imagination, I am... I'm a, a vanilla white bread kid that <laughs> lives in the middle of Indiana. Like there's not a whole lot going on. I all wish right. I had so, better stories, but I really don't. <laughs> that's all right. So what was that? Your stories have been plenty good enough. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Honestly, it was when that friend told me that I am attracted to broken things. That was a huge moment of, yeah, that, yep. (laughs) And so I just need to be careful of that. And I need to, I can be a bossy bitch. I am well versed at just giving out all of the advice. And sometimes I just need to hold back on that and not try to fix everything that I really should kind of turn inward and not tell people what to do, but explore what they think they should be doing and then go from there. That was huge for me. You become the coach. Trying. (laughs) Less bossy, more coachy. Yeah. (laughs) So what was the worst piece of advice you've 
either ever been given or you've given someone else? Oh my goodness, so much. Bad advice. I have a much harder time with that. I don't know that I have told anybody to do something that is really, really bad for them to do because most of the time I am trying to back off a little bit and kind of let them make decisions. This is going to sound bad, but people don't tell me what to do very often. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly and truly cannot think of anything that stands out to me as like, we really should not have done that. Because I just don't, I don't really listen to what other people tell me to do. This is all now sounding very bad because I can't be bossed. <laughs> and I don't like to be told what to do. So Power take that. Yep. <laughs> I think my friends will tell you the same thing that it's really, it's really hard to tell me what to do because I've already made the decision and I'm probably already doing it. So. All right. Who are your veterinary heroes? Harold Davis is one of them. He is one of the founding members of the veterinary technician specialty. And I remember meeting him once as a very young technician. And I went up to him and I said, you're Harold Davis. And I shook his hand. And then I didn't know what else to say to him after that. And Small talk. <laughs> yep. I'm real good at it. <laughs> How's the weather here, Harold? It's so embarrassing because now like, you know, I've worked with him on a number of different occasions and, and it's still like doing things with Harold Davis. That's crazy. But I think what he's done for the profession and especially with the technician specialty and, you know, trailblazing a lot of the lecturing and and all of these things, I, I would have to say he's probably at the top of my list for just somebody that I really look up to and appreciate for what I can do because of what he has done. Nice. Now, if you could give yourself one piece of advice and you can choose whichever graduation you wish to focus on here, but if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation, what would it be? You don't have to do everything. Just do what you can do and be happy with that and not feel like Everything has to be your responsibility because if given the opportunity, other people will step up. What would you most like to be remembered for? I want to be remembered for being real. I think I'm so over social media, honestly and truly. I'm so over the persona that people put out. And then when you meet them, it's not quite the same. And I, I want people to say, yeah, Megan is the same all the time. That there's just no there's no front that I put up that this is who I am. Short form, but possibly not. You mentioned earlier coming off of social media or Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has been the impact of that for you? I am much calmer, <laughs> just in general, because... I think one of the biggest problems within the veterinary technician profession is that we continue to attack each other and we cannot get together and figure out as a profession what we need to do to move forward. We're continuing to attack each other. And that happened to me and it was really hard and just it hit me a lot harder than I thought it would because I thought I was kind of above getting sucked into those arguments, but nope, 
took it out and just, I have not missed it at all to see how people are dragging each other down, to see the complaining, to see the piling on, whether it's good or bad. I just think people get too much of their opinions from other people. And if you quiet that noise and you really think about what's important to you and not what other people are telling you is important, then life is so much better. And that is for professional, that is for politics, that is for all of it. There's too many opinions. I don't need it. (laughs) I love it. Last, it's not so much a question there, but you know, what have we not talked about that, that really matters? Or do you have any last sort of thoughts to share with, with the listeners? I just, I want to encourage people to make a change if you need to make a change. I hear a lot people say, you know, well, I, I just work, you know, in a really small town and I am in this toxic practice and I'm miserable, but I can't go anywhere else. But you can. I think it's harder when you have a family. I think it's harder, you know, but you can make that change. And if you need to make that change, then do it. And I don't want people to leave the profession, but I do want them to realize that there are other things out there. I am so happy <laughs> where I am. And it it took a huge change to get me here, but it's been the best decision I've ever made. And so I think if you're feeling a lot of the same things that I was feeling, then do something about it. And don't just say, well, this is as good as it's going to get. So get out. Love it. Megan, thank you so much for your time. This is a conversation that is long overdue, but perhaps it benefits from the the, uh, the rich experience and learning that you've had along the ways in your journey. It's, you know, it's be great just to spend a bit of time chatting to you. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for all the, the great work that you've done in many aspects of your career. And um, thanks for getting rid of those bloody sofas. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> thank you. This was really fun. So I appreciate you asking me to do this. It was a good time. So I cannot wait until we can all travel again and have a gin and tonic and have some chats. <laughs> I tell you, that will be an amazing moment. And I promise not to ask about the weather. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> We're just going to dive right in. Amen. So that wraps up another episode of Blunt Dissection. Megan was a wonderful guest, so my heartfelt thanks to her. Now, before you jump off, the number one way that podcasts get to be shared, people get to know about them, is when you guys tell your pals about podcast so if you wouldn't mind my request to you is would you mind if you've enjoyed this episode sharing it with somebody you think needs to hear from megan and the absolute best thing you can do is leave a review on itunes so give it a star rating five would be appreciated and a little comment as to what you liked about the show and that will help us to keep producing the content you have come to love so from all of us here at vetex international until next time be safe be well and be happy